Well, good morning again, 59th Street Church. We welcome those of you who are uh, joining us a little later as we continue in our sermon series, uh, Knots by Bread Alone, where we see how true transformation and satisfaction can only happen by Christ alone. And as we move into the Easter service and celebrate the victory of Jesus um, over death, we actually end our series uh, by learning that we find satisfaction, not in the things we find in this world, uh, but we ultimately only find satisfaction through Christ and in Christ. In this passage that we're about to read shortly, we come across the story of one of Jesus' disciples who heard that Jesus has been resurrected, but rather than responding with joy and gladness, instead this disciple responds with doubt and demands concrete evidence. Uh, This disciple thinks that these claims of Christ being alive are just a little too suspicious to be true. Now, talking about suspicious, for our youth ministry over the pandemic, uh, but also coming out of it as well, uh, one of the favorite games that we played with the youths was a game called uh, Mafia, or adapted on their mobile versions. It's called Among Us, um, which has been a smash hit uh, in this generation, at least. And in the simplest version of this game, uh, players are given two roles. At the start of each game, uh, each player is given a secret card that they cannot reveal to anyone under any circumstance. Now, if you're given the role of a townsfolk, uh, your job is to suss out or to figure out who are the mafia members. And during your daily town hall meetings, you have to accuse someone that you think is evil, that person gives a defense, and then there's a majority vote to see who gets kicked out of the town. And the Mafia members, on the other hand, they have a very different goal. They have a very different objective. Their goal is to blend in with everyone else to appear as a town folk. Uh, But during the night, while everyone sleeps, they strike and they get to, for a lack of better words, uh, give a player an opportunity to now sleep uh, with the fishes. Now, once the Mafia members take control of the city, the game is over, Uh, but if the the townsfolk are successful in kicking out or voting out the Mafia members, then the town is saved and the good guys win. And what makes this game so fun, in my opinion at least, is that there's always an element of mystery, right? You use all of your observational, all of your intuition skills to make a deduction about whether a person is good or evil. And since you don't have concrete evidence on hand, uh, since you're not allowed to see their card, there's a bit of an adrenaline rush because you don't know if you're actually right or wrong. Now, that's how most normal people play this game. How our youths play it, on the other hand, is an entirely different story. They are so desperate in wanting to find out who the Mafia members are that they will pull all sorts of stunts, all sorts of tactics to see that concrete evidence, to see that card. They might peek when I hand out cards, um, or they might show their own card to their friends so that they have concrete evidence to trust them, or they might just kind of yoink the card out of their friend's hand and just yell out to everyone like, oh my God, you know, Barry's the Mafia, Barry's the Mafia, don't trust him, which makes for a pretty unentertaining game for me. And it's very frustrating because every time they do this, I have to collect the cards, shuffle it, hand it out, watch them going cards from each other again, collect the cards, and then hand them all out again. But this whole process of them wanting to find out who is good and who is evil, I think it reveals something about 
what we all want. And the fact is that we all want to see it in order to believe it. We all want concrete evidence. And when it comes to God, who we obviously cannot see, I think this is all the more true. And as we're about to read the passage about Thomas, uh, this hits very close to home for me because like Thomas, I doubt it. Uh, but like Thomas, I also now acknowledge Jesus as Lord and as God. So let's take a look at our passage today from John chapter 20, uh, verses 24 to 29. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, uh, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it on my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Truly um, incredible passage that we have here today. Now, as we dive into our passage, let's, let's actually start talking about who this Thomas character is. And Thomas, throughout the Gospel of John, he's actually portrayed as a, as a pretty complex character. Uh, Thomas, at times, he displayed tremendous loyalty, tremendous devotion to Jesus. Yet at other times, Thomas also struggled with doubt. Sometimes he struggled with a lack of understanding. In chapter 11, verse 16, right after Jesus left Judea because he was getting uh, stoned to death by the religious elite, uh, Jesus actually tells his disciples, hey, I'm, I'm actually going to go back to Judea. Um, they're like, what? Why? Like, how, how could you do this? You just left. You were getting stoned to death. And that's when Jesus reveals, like, oh, it's because my friend Lazarus has just died. And the act of stoning is no joke. It was used as a form of execution in the past, and it's still used in some parts of the world today. And so when Jesus tells his disciples that he's going back to Judea, they thought that Jesus is going back in order to be executed. And so Thomas, in his loyalty, in his bravery, he, he tells his fellow brothers, let us also go so that we may die with him. We see this tremendous loyalty, this tremendous devotion. However, Thomas's devotion is still not without its own shortcomings. In John chapter 14, as Jesus tells his disciples that he's going back to the Father, right? He's departing them. He's going to prepare a place for them. Thomas doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. Thomas doesn't understand that Jesus' departure entails his death, nor does Thomas understand why Jesus is leaving them to go back to the Father. And as we come to our passage today, we see that in Thomas's mind, at least, the game is over, right? He spent years with Jesus, and now the person that he had been following is dead. And because Thomas didn't understand what Jesus meant about the resurrection, about returning to the Father, Thomas had no hope to look forward to. The gig is up, the Messiah is dead, and it's now time to return back to normal life, which explains why Thomas, in the beginning of our passage, was not with the disciples when Jesus first appeared. There's nothing to live for. There's nothing to hope for anymore. And so with this defeated mindset, 
when Thomas hears from the disciples that they have seen the Lord, Thomas replies in a way that I think many of us would respond. Thomas demands to see concrete evidence, that unless he sees the nail marks in Jesus's hand and puts his hand on Jesus's side, he will not believe. And Thomas's reaction at this point reveals the depth of his doubts. Although Thomas had been an extremely loyal follower, he still struggles to accept the reality of the resurrection without tangible proof. And Thomas is grappling with something that seems pretty much impossible, right? Thomas struggles with the nature of this miracle in itself. Some commentators say that Thomas's request to touch Jesus wasn't actually a request. Some commentators say that Thomas is actually mocking his friends for how ridiculous they sound. They're telling this man, they're telling Thomas, like, a dead man just came back to life. And Thomas is thinking, yeah, right, you know, like, a dead man came back to life, Jesus is alive again, like, okay, let me touch him, he's alive, you know, get out of here, what are you, crazy? But by examining Thomas's character, we actually learn a very valuable lesson for our own walk with God. I think it's important for us to be devoted to God, but sometimes devotion is just not enough. Coming to church on Sunday is not enough for our faith. We must also at the same time cultivate a deep understanding of the truths of Jesus's teaching and the power of the resurrection. Our faith depends on our knowledge of, how, of who Jesus truly is and what he has truly accomplished for us through the cross and through the resurrection. And as we encounter Thomas in the story, we also encounter ourselves as well. It's funny how sometimes scripture acts as a mirror where we see our true nature. Are there areas in our lives where we struggle with doubt because we think that a situation is too impossible for God? Are there truths about God that are just a little too difficult for us to accept? Do we truly know this God that we worship today, this Sunday morning? And as Thomas, as he wrestles with these questions, with the doubts and skepticism in his mind, we're actually about to see something dramatic happen. We're about to see how Thomas's encounter with the risen Christ radically transforms Thomas's understanding of God and ultimately leads Thomas to make one of the most profound declarations of faith in the entirety of the New Testament. And as we turn our attention to that specific transformational encounter, we see that this pivotal moment not only changes Thomas's understanding of Jesus, but also serves as a powerful reminder of the importance of our own encounter with Jesus and our own spiritual journey. So we see that after a week of skepticism and doubt, Thomas, he finally gets the opportunity to witness the resurrected Christ with his own eyes. And in our passage, we learn that despite the doors being locked, Jesus somehow miraculously appears again before all the disciples and tells them, peace be with you. And this statement sets the tone for the rest of the encounter. Jesus doesn't chastise Thomas for mocking the resurrection or refusing to believe in it. Rather, Jesus has come to pronounce peace to them. Jesus offers Thomas comfort and reassurance in the midst of doubt. And for Thomas, Jesus tangibly gives him the peace he needs in order to believe. 
Jesus knows the heart of Thomas and the doubt that's in his heart. And so Jesus addresses that issue directly. Jesus requests for Thomas to touch his wounds. Jesus offers Thomas with the opportunity to confirm the resurrection with concrete evidence. And it's interesting to note that John's gospel, it actually doesn't tell us, if you have your Bibles, if you just kind of read it briefly, the gospel of John actually does not tell us explicitly whether Thomas touched Jesus's wounds or not. I think the common assumption we believe is that Thomas, you know, proceeded to touch Jesus and then was like, oh my gosh, but the gospel actually doesn't say that. The impression we get from John's gospel is that without even touching Jesus, the moment that Thomas saw Christ's wound, Thomas was completely overcome with awe and reverence. In verse 28, Thomas utters one of the most profound confessions of faith in the entire New Testament when he exclaims, my Lord and my God. Why is this the most profound confession? Because no one in the entire gospel has called Jesus God. They might call him Messiah, they might call him a prophet or a teacher, but Thomas recognized something that no one else could, that this was the word of God, that this word is God. And this is significant because Thomas's faith at this point has been entirely transformed through this personal encounter with Christ. Thomas, who once thought of Jesus as just a teacher or just as a prophet, now understands that Jesus is much more than that. Jesus indeed is God. But there's another significant transformation in Thomas's faith. You see, Thomas did not say, you are Lord, you are God. Rather, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Thomas recognizes that although Jesus is the Lord and God of the universe, he has also made himself available to be experienced personally through a relationship. And for us gathered here today, which statement do we identify more with? Perhaps we only see Jesus as Lord and God. Maybe we intellectually understand that, but we feel a deep chasm, deep emptiness in our faith. Perhaps we have yet to accept Jesus as my Lord and my God. But how do we get to this place ourselves where we can actually truly say that for ourselves, that Jesus is my Lord and my God? How do we develop a faith like Thomas when we, can, when we actually cannot see or touch Jesus? And throughout the Gospels, especially in John and Luke, there's actually a very interesting emphasis on the importance or the validity of eyewitness testimony. And the purpose of these eyewitness testimonies is to show that these aren't just made up stories. These aren't just fables with a moral lesson. These are all legitimate eyewitness accounts of events that actually happened in history. In our passage, I think there's a very funny, ironic moment, right? The disciples are all telling Thomas their eyewitness testimony of Jesus being alive, but Thomas originally refused to believe in their eyewitness testimony. But now that Jesus is returning back to the Father, and now that Thomas does believe because he has seen, Thomas, who is the one who did not believe in eyewitness testimony, he is the one who will now be forced to give his eyewitness testimony of seeing the risen Christ. And the thing is, Jesus, he recognizes this. Jesus says to Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
Jesus knows that as he returns back to the Father, there is a time when people will have to come to believe without seeing the resurrected Christ. But how do we do that? How can we believe if we do not see? Well, the thing is, actually, we do see. In physics, there's a very interesting way of testing if a theory is true or not. You see, there are certain particles of the universe that are postulated to exist from a mathematical perspective, but these particles are so insanely small that they cannot be seen, even with the greatest microscope ever invented. You, you simply just cannot see these particles. So how do these physicists know that these particles are real and that they exist? Rather than trying to search the particle or develop you know, some crazy microscope with the ability to you know, see it directly, rather than doing all of that, the way they would confirm if a particle exists is to see the effect that this particle has as it interacts around its surroundings. And earlier in our sermon series, we actually see that Jesus, he uses the same analogy when he talks to Nicodemus. He explains to Nicodemus that you cannot see the wind, but you see how the wind touches everything around it. You hear it as it rushes past your face. You see it as it hits the trees and the leaves. And so it is with God and God's spirit. You cannot see it, but when it happens, when God encounters people, communities, and nations, you cannot deny that some sort of transformation is happening. In our Good Friday service, we had a tremendous guest speaker from Edge City Church who served as a missionary. And he recounted a story of what happened when the nation of Rwanda encountered God and God's forgiveness right after one of the worst genocides of the 19th century. He talked about how through forgiveness, Rwanda was able to heal and to bridge the divide between the two communities. He also talked about what happens when God's spirit washes over an Islamic nation and revivals start to happen in underground churches where pastors are hungry to be equipped and to be trained. They would risk their lives for this, for this message of the gospel. And for ourselves, not too long ago, our nation had its own little encounter with God when an unexpected revival happened out of nowhere in the small town of Wilmore, Kentucky. And when we look at the lives of those of us who are gathered here today, each and every single one of us has a story to tell, a story of how we have encountered the power of God's salvation and how we have been transformed into the likeness of Christ. Each of us has a story of how God is still continuing to work out his salvation in our lives. I don't need God. I don't need to see God in order to believe. I don't need to touch his wounds. I already see God because I see God working through all of your lives. And so for those of you who are sitting at the fence today, waiting to see God or to experience God, I invite you first to look at your neighbors, to look at your brothers and sisters who are gathered here today. Um, I promise you, you're not crazy people. These are not people with an agenda. These are not people who fell into some sort of crazy religious trap. These are ordinary people who have encountered the power of God. And just as the wind blows and moves and changes everything around it, your brothers and sisters gathered here today have been moved and have been changed by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. And so as we end our message here today, 
on this Easter Sunday, we end the message with the news and the knowledge, the good news that Christ is alive, that Christ is working throughout our lives and throughout our worlds. And the wind of his spirit is blowing across the face of the world, bringing transformation, revival, and change to everything it touches. And the question we have for you today is, do you want to experience that transformation for yourself? Why don't we come together for a moment of prayer? Lord, you are alive, and because you are alive, we have hope in this world. Uh, we know that you're working in it in order to bring revival across the face of this earth. And we admit, Lord, that there is far more suffering than we would like to see. There's, there's far more grief and pain in this world that, than we want to endure. We know that you bore those pains on that awful Friday. But today, you have risen from the grave. You have defeated sin and evil. You have claimed victory, and you have now claimed your seats on your throne in heaven. Because you have won, we know that we, who are your body, that we triumph as well. We see you working in our lives as we battle our addictions and our unhealthy habits. We see you bringing opportunities into our lives to further your kingdom. We realize that somehow in the midst of a storm, somehow through your presence, we still find peace. But ultimately, Father, we rejoice today because we know that we share in your victory over death. And as I said earlier, if the, if the greatest evil, that is death, is defeated, then what is there for us to fear? So we celebrate your resurrection, and we pray that you will continue to transform our lives into Christ-likeness so that when we rise, we can share eternity with you. We thank you and we praise you for all you've done, for all you're doing, and all you will do. In your most precious son's name we pray. Amen.